This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au. Right now, it's time for us to have an art attack. Art attack, 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 attack. I'm joined in the studio by Ty Snaith and Ace Wagstaff. Good morning to you both. Good, uh, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Woo. Sort of good We're morning. Here. We're here. We're all together. That's a good start. <laughs> okay, morning to you, Richard. Yes. It, it's been <laughs> a, very, a very mediocre day to you too, sir. <laughs> it's been a little bit chaotic so far. So, mm. yeah. Mm. But we're here. Hello. It's nice to see you both. We're alive. Yeah, yeah. It's, and I'm really loving this cold weather for now. Um, you know, just waiting for the next two weeks and ah. until I'm bored of it. But uh, for now, the crispness, crispness in the air is, is very much welcome. Mm. Uh, Works for me. Yeah, yeah. Feeling alive because of it, that's for sure. And good well, weather to go out and see art. Yeah, I was feeling really, to be honest, I've been feeling really sort of low lately and a bit <laughs> sad and depressed. And I went to see this show, was it last oh, night? It was, was it the night no, before No, it was last? Tuesday night. Tuesday night. Yeah, so definitely a pick-me-up. And it really did make me think, oh... That's why we make art. It's not yeah. all bad because there's people like Meredith Turnbull in the world. Exactly. And it was, yeah, it was a good bolster to me as well because yeah. I, had, I was so slumpy uh, yeah, me Tuesday. Too. And then just heading to this exhibition. I normally don't go to exhibitions because I'm of quite short stature. <laughs> so for me, going to an exhibition is, is not much work I at all. I just look at a lot there, of people's Ace. shoulders. Ah, you mean you don't normally go to exhibition openings? Openings, openings yeah. yes. Yes, because usually it's just looking at people's shoulders, the back of their heads, admiring, uh, <laughs> you know, when the last time they had their hair cut was. You can normally tell from the back of the neck. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but um, it was a good one. But it was amazing. Yeah, and, yeah. and we should say it's at it's at the Ian Potter, um, not the one at Fed Square, the one... So the Ian Potter Museum of Art That's at right. Melbourne, University. Melbourne University. That's right, yep. And it is not just Meredith Turnbull. She's upstairs and downstairs is Stieg Pearson. Yes. Um, painter, Stieg, yeah. which is actually kind of like a retrospective, really, it's, of it's, his yeah. practice. It's a huge show. Yeah. It is. yeah. Stieg was on the show about three weeks ago, I think. Oh, good. Mm. So yeah. we don't need to talk about that oh, then. Can... <laughs> <laughs> Efficiency plus today. Straight um, through. We did. Well, I did actually. To be honest, um, I really, I mean, I, I like Stieg's it's, work. It's a curator's and... dream having like a retrospective for an yeah. artist like Stieg because it... you can really show some cuts like... And yeah, and it shows yeah. the story, the whole story. It shows, yeah. And it shows sort of like the evolution and it shows the... You know, just that uh, language that has made and that the grandeur of practice over time, yeah. like just yeah. But I have to say, I got upstairs to Meredith's and I was like, "Whoa, yeah!" Like Boom. my brain just switched on, and not that it wasn't already, on, but you know, <laughs> um, switched into high gear. Yeah, it really, Litter. just made me smile. You know, when you walk around a show and you go, "What? Oh, I love this! I love this! I just want to be in here! I want to live in here!" This and this show, just <laughs> as a loose connection to Steve, is definitely like a retrospective in the making. It's it's a show that both speaks of arts practices, research. Um, you know, arts practices as crafts. Yeah, well, the thing with Meredith, for those who don't know Meredith Turnbull's practice, is that she's very much uh, has three distinct arms to her practice. So mm. she is first and foremost um, a maker. So she's, she makes incredible jewellery, but then also sculpture. She's represented by Dane Singer. Um, but she's also... Um, uh, an academic, so mm. art historian. She's a she has her PhD. She's a doctor. Um, she's incredibly uh, interesting when it comes to breaking down the boundaries between 
design, craft, art, utilitarian yeah. versus ornament. Um, so Rightly so. Meredith's academic uh, input to Australian art is also really important. And then the third arm is now this sort of way of working as also curator mm. and artist. So what she's done here in this show is she's been let loose in the Ian Potter or Melbourne Uni uh, collection of ornaments, ceramics, glassware. It's a beautifully um, merged practice. Most yeah. of the time when, um, you know, somebody says, oh, there's, there's this solo exhibition by Artist X on at the moment, I kind of go, oh, great, you know, like somebody standing on a podium on a pedestal playing a trumpet. Um, but with Meredith, she really opens that up and expands it into the wider world, creates this context from mm. artefacts and, and objects. And it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's technically not her work that's no. being shown. It's the work from the collection that yep. she's repositioned but what is so interesting about this show is the way she's done it has put all of these objects from a big period of time, like mm. some really, really old, some more contemporary, and she's put them on an even playing field so that we view them in one in one room together but framed by Meredith's sensibilities. Yeah. And it's, this is, it's object curation as collage, it's essentially. It's really, really interesting. Nice yeah. way to put it. Yeah, it is like that, and, and spatially too. So all the plinths Meredith designed and the, the walls... Mm. I found really fascinating. They're sort of like this roughly hewn pinstripe. Um, no that, design stone left unturned in this show. The, nah. the production is beautiful. That yeah. pinstripe. Yeah, it's yeah. really beautiful. And then a series of uh, photographs all around the walls of mm. the space where Meredith has used these objects from the collection and shot them in these kind of very warm studio shoots. So I guess one of the things that this show is doing is really considering the way that museological um, framework makes us see objects, mm. which is quite cold and without personality or without um, a story. Definitely. So she's inverted that and made it so where she's shot these these um, objects, they have things in their affliction. They have, you know, like that, that amazing striped ceramic oh, yeah. Japanese um, vessel. She's sort of put that in front of another striped piece of fabric so it's echoing this, this language. But also she's sort of... She's given them a, a chance to be warm, mm. and I think what to have a relationship. Yeah. I've spoken about this a little bit. I think there is some value, and I'm going to have to write an essay about it mm. essentially someday. But um, the idea of shooting objects not as, sh as still life or painting them not as still life, mm. but as portraits, kind of bringing mm. out the inner spirit, value and energy of an object yeah. and making that present just as it were a, a person or an, an yeah. entity. Well, what it does is it makes it personal to you, the viewer. So it makes you think about how you would use them. It mm. makes you think about touching them. It makes you think about living with them or the life that people did have with it these It supplants objects, itself you know? in your existing memory and yeah. it already gives you a connection. It's a very clever way it's of hijacking really kind of cognitively. Yeah, it's not. It, yeah, it's kind of not even hijacking. It's just allowing your brain mm. to go, oh, no, these are human objects. They're not, yeah. they're not museum objects. This wooden bowl was made as a bowl. They're not separate from the world. They yeah. exist within the world. Exactly. Yeah. And as should art. And I think that yeah. that's, um, that's a really good point because it then bridges into, you're like, well, art isn't just this thing for rich people's houses. It's actually something that it's to make a comment it's mm. made out of from a person's um, soul or passion or, you know. And as and Meredith does with this show with these <laughs> objects, she highlights that we have art in our lives every day. Like every mm. object is, right. is so beautifully made, constructed and has its own value. Yeah. And actually one thing I wanted to say is 
when you go, which not if you go, when you go to see this show, um, ask for the catalogue for Meredith's work because there's a really stunning essay in here called Touching the Collection, Ornament and Time in Meredith Temple's Closer by Jeremy Eaton. And I have to say, if Jeremy's listening or if someone could pass this on to Jeremy, um, that is seriously one of the best catalogue essays I've read for a long time. So, um, yeah, get that and get your eyeballs over that. Uh, but go, it's really interesting. It's such Eyeballs a good show. Eyeballs on the work, brain around the words. Yeah. Uh, Stig just... Pearson downstairs. It's it's an incredible duo of shows. And also more institutions letting artists in to work with the collections. Mm. Like I know it's happening a bit and there's practices we've talked about like Patrick Pound's yeah. practice or there's a few, um, you know, Brooke Andrews worked with collections. Mm. There's quite a few that have happened, but more. It makes those collections so relevant. Yeah, It takes definitely. them out of their dusty containers. And, and as we've noticed yeah. with commercial galleries taking a step up and really putting on, uh, you know, more academic shows or providing more uh, intellectual meat to accompany mm. their, their exhibitions, um, you know, this might be something that could be really exciting is have, having artists involved in commercial galleries also take the reins a bit and, mm. and curate shows in such a way. Or just public collections, you know, like yeah. we paid for that collection. We should be able to see it and we should be able to see it in a contemporary sense. And I think mm. that's what mm. Meredith has done so adeptly. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting that there's, it feels like there's a bit of a trend at the moment to explore the collection in more detail because RMIT at the moment, for example, in the yeah. RMIT gallery, I uh, just had the curator on last week, they've got a major survey of the RMIT art collection, yeah. 120 years of work. Yeah. That's a fantastic show as well. Well, last yeah. year I was in a show where I was commissioned to make a work responding to a work in the Town Hall collection, which was really... it's At such Hawthorne. Yeah, and it's such a great opportunity for an artist because we never get briefs. So to have mm. a brief and to have this thing at your fingertips and also just to explore those lives of those makers past is just so important. Yeah, I think oh. it's just really exciting that we're moving out of kind of these black and white narratives mm. and, and into something more grey and exploratory and Pinstripe. something that, you know, hits at the static and moves it around a little bit. Yeah, yeah, so that's it's, it's on for a while. It only just sort of opened... So Meredith Turnbull closer on until Sunday the 1st of July at the Ian Potter Museum of Art, the University of Melbourne. It's on Swanston Street. So if you get the tram up Swanston Street to where it terminates at the university, uh, you're basically pretty much just outside. Yep. And another thing that's on at the moment that I'm keen to get to, and I think it opens tonight actually, is a show curated by Beth Caird at the Gertrude Glass House. And it's called There Is a Pain So Utter. Uh, and it's curated by Beth Kedd, who is an artist herself. Mm. So if you, I mean, following on from that discussion with Meredith, Beth is another artist who is definitely taking that new um, role in hand and very much going with artist as curator, but also writer. Beth's an incredible writer. Yep. Uh, there's a performance by Brian Fuata on Tuesday the 1st of May at 6 to 6.30. So if you can't get there tonight for the opening, I would highly recommend seeing Brian's performance. He's always um, good value. Um, and that is that has quite a lot of different artists in there who there's a long list but very much worth, worth checking out. So that's at um, Gertrude Glass House and the address uh, is um, Glass House Road, Collingwood. So... 44 Glasshouse Road. Check that out as well. Yeah. Excellent. My other pick. What else? I don't know. 7th had a a group of shows, a suite of shows open on the 18th, which is running through to May. Um, 
uh, so many artists to list and mention, but I will just say the Gallery One uh, father-daughter exhibition is fantastic with Bina oh. Butcher, Carly Lynch, Emma Jolie, Michelle Wells, Rachel Selman Lomas, Taylor Denning, Valerie Foster and Wendy Golden. Well, that's a big show. It's a big show and there are um, a lot of Perth-based artists coming through for that show as well, yeah. Mm. Father-daughter. Mm. And I think and I think Shelley Lassica has one of her final performances coming up at Sutton too. I don't have the details oof, on oof, hand, oof, but, oof, oof. but she's been doing a project in the project Oh, space. get your Google fingers ready. Yeah, yep, she's worth looking at too. Always lots to see. Yes, very good. Always a pleasure catching up with the two of you. Back to the cave. <laughs> we'll see you in a fortnight's time. <laughs> Bye. See ya. Now, you probably listen to this show live or on radio on demand, but you may listen to it as the podcast version of the show, which is edited down, kind of two or three interviews a week edited down into a podcast. Podcasts have become almost ubiquitous, uh, certainly celebrated and delighted. And it's like, I don't know, it's like the golden age of television. Every week I get given the name of another podcast to listen to or, in the case of TV, another TV show to watch on Netflix or Stan or whatever. So if you ever feel a little over over kind of overwhelmed by uh, the amount of podcasts that are out there. One way to whittle your list down is to just go to the ones that are nominated for the Australian Podcast Awards, the finalists of which were announced on the 4th of April. There's a wide range of podcast styles that have been nominated, including storytelling, documentary style, and, close to my heart, arts and entertainment. One of the podcasts nominated in the arts and entertainment category in the Australian Podcast Award finalists of 2018 is Across the Aisle, and I'm joined in the studio now by co-founder and co-host of Across the Aisle podcast, Carla Donnelly. Carla, welcome to Triple R. Hi, Richard. So for people who haven't listened to Across the Aisle before, what's what's the point of it as a podcast? What, does it, <laughs> what role does it serve in the arts what ecology? What is the point of podcasts? Um, so I guess really that's the reason why I created it was Um, I was sort of doing that sort of beat style theatre review and after a while I became really frustrated by not sort of having enough time to think because of the whole 24-hour kind of published cycle. And um, I would find myself a couple of weeks later really (laughs) knitting together something quite profound about a production and being frustrated that I couldn't kind of put that out into the world. So that's how Across the R came to be. It's long form. We choose one show each per month and we publish per month and we spend about 20 minutes talking about each show. So uh, you being uh, you and your co-host, Philip Teal. That's right. The idea then of a a discursive critique of... Uh, performance really intrigues me because it boils down at some times to the difference between a review versus criticism. Sure. What do you see as the difference? Uh, Good question. So I think sort of, I mean, I think they're both equally valid. Let's get that out there straight away. Um, And they're both excellent forms of um, writing or uh, producing. But review, I think, is more sort of short... Uh, information for the consumer to understand whether it's a show that they would be interested in seeing um, and maybe a little bit of um, discourse about how that kind of fits into the current landscape whereas we feel sort of our long form slow criticism as Philip uh, labels it as something that is more very uh, deep dive, understanding how it fits into our cultural landscape um, we think theatre sort of really represents how how our society's going in a lot of ways. So it's really sort of doing that broad contextual understanding of the shows. 
And one of the things that you say on the website is uh, for Across the Aisle is that people don't need to have seen the shows in question to be able to appreciate the discussion about them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's really important. I think particularly, as you would know, with radio and podcasts, um, I think a lot of podcasts sort of don't um, pay attention to the listener. Um, So we're really concerned on our listener and having them included in the conversation, but also... um, you know, the shows that we get to are sort of maybe short runs and we only publish once a month. So um, we're going on the understanding that most of the people who listen to our show haven't seen them. So we go into that deep dive of really understanding what the show is about and describing it and its cultural context. And unpacking it from a range of different perspectives. So not just talking about uh, a show in isolation, but talking about it as a work of art that is influenced by and can influence other productions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also what we talk about a lot is, um, you know, the state of arts in Melbourne in particular. So how it sort of fits in within um, the structure, the the structures of the theatre, all the different theatre companies and also um, festivals and what that sort of really says more broadly about Melbourne in general too. Now, as I said, you've been nominated for the uh, in the arts and entertainment category of the Australian Podcast Awards. Was it rather thrilling to get nominated? It was. It was completely surprising. Um, we're competing against podcasts that are fully funded, that are part of gigantic American podcast networks, um, you know, funded by the ABC. So... And not to say that we don't think we do, what we do is great, but um, yeah, it was it was a wonderful thrill. In terms of the not just the, the the nomination itself, but presumably the recognition will then drive more traffic towards your site as well. And if uh, people want to check out uh, across the aisle, the podcast www.acrossisle.com uh, is the place to go. Uh, so, have you seen a spike in traffic since the uh, the awards were announced on the fourth of April? Yeah, a little bit. I think the Australian Podcast Awards in general is something that is also quite unknown. So, they're two things combined. Um, Um, because podcasting is still sort of growing its audience, I think, as well. So, but yeah, we've definitely... We've definitely seen a lot more um, traffic and recognition and people talking to us about the show, which has been awesome. Why have a podcast about something as ephemeral as theatre? Yeah, that's a really good question. (laughs) Um, As I sort of said before, backtracking, um, we really believe that you know, the shows that we, the stories that we tell each other and choose to, you know, put on our main stages in our cities and in our, in our um, you know, towns and country are really kind of representative of the, the id, the social id of where we're going or where we're at. Or, um, so from a psychological perspective, um, it's really interesting. But also it's, um, it's, a, it's just a form of art that's really close to my heart and I want to promote it as much as possible and there's not enough deep dive criticism out there as we know all of the papers are shrinking their arts coverage to almost zero so it was just another way that I could continue to promote theatre and the performing arts. Uh, For people who haven't yet downloaded uh, an episode, what does a a, a standard episode of of Across the Aisle kind of cover? Because, I mean, if uh, people jump onto your Facebook page, for example, facebook.com forward slash Across Aisle, the the latest issue, you're talking about uh, Abigail's Party, the MTC production, but you're also discussing uh, the Festival of Live Art Uh, and talking about uh, orchestras and dark mofo. You're packing a lot into one episode. 
Yeah, so we have our format is um, we have one show, we have our intermission in the show where, you know, like in the usual intermission, Phil and I, you know, have a have a drink and we have a chat and a catch up about all the things that we've seen and thought about since we'd last seen each other. And so during that intermission, it's usually where we talk about things that are happening around town or Things that um, things that sort of we want our listeners to know about. And then we discuss the second show, and then at the end of it, we have our coming soon, which is also to promote other shows that we think uh, our listeners would enjoy, or just you know things that we should get more promotion. And so that then makes it uh, a combination of, as you say, the deep dive analysis of a work coupled with the the, the immediacy cl- closer to a newspaper saying this is coming up soon. Yeah, yeah, and we sort of you know tried to ape a sort of, you know, um, like a theatre format kind of thing with, you know, first act, second act and sort of, you know, the previews at the end. Carla, why do you think podcasts have become so popular over the last couple of years, whether it's true crime podcasts or much more personal discursive podcasts or some of the other podcasts that are nominated in the Australian Podcast Awards? So you've got comedy, you've got sport, you've got news and current affairs programs, uh, family and kids show, business and marketing, technology and science. I mean, there's a podcast category for every taste sure. and really a podcast for, for every taste as well. Why are, they, why are they so popular? Well, I think it's sort of more, you know, Internet 2.0, the, the development of technology, we're all becoming very used to being able to curate our streams. So whether it's visual, audio, uh, on Twitter, I curate all of my journalists rather than one sort of masthead. Um, I think that that is... That is, well, that's my appeal. I assume that that's the appeal for a lot of other people is that, you know, I hop in the car and I can just press play and I can have, you know, two hours of listening to exactly what I want to listen to um, that's in my quote-unquote bubble, you know, and uh, not sort of have to think about anything. And finally, for people who might be, well, actually not finally, penultimately, (laughs) for people who might be wanting to create their own podcast, Ah, what's your advice? Good question. Listen to a lot of other podcasts. That's my first point because there's, um, you need to really understand what your point of difference is going to be. I mean, obviously we're all sort of special and individual, but um, yeah, there's a lot of podcasts out there. So listen to production values in particular, understand how you want to structure it and it'll give you a good foundation to move forward with what you want to create. And with Across the Aisle, you've talked a lot about being conscious of your audience. So to what, how much editing is involved, for example, to keep the podcast to a manageable length as opposed to a rambling hour, hour and a half long conversation? <laughs> uh, we're pretty militant about time. So we want to keep our episodes under 45 minutes. Um, and that was something that we really had to watch the clock on in the beginning. We don't really edit down very much. It's Philip giving me death stares most of the time if I'm talking a little bit too long. Uh, that's our natural attrition. Um, yeah. So I think have a limit but under 45 minutes I think is is a good time limit and finally uh, if people want to learn more about the Australian podcast awards then uh, as I said there's a range of uh, uh, categories storytelling arts and entertainment documentary style news and current affair there will be a popular vote as well Mm. as the uh, the the judging panel are you excited or nervous or all of the above Uh, all of the above it's actually being held in Melbourne at the Melbourne 
Beagle Tent on the 5th of May. So we're able to attend quite easily. So we're excited about that. So, yeah, it's great. So if people should vote, get along, and uh, you should listen to Across the Aisle. You can download the podcast. Uh, well, you can get all the details at www.acrossisle.com. Follow them on Twitter, at Across Aisle, or uh, f- like them on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Across Aisle. I've been talking with Carla Donnelly, who is uh, one half of the team at Across the Aisle, nominated in the Arts and Entertainment category at the Australian Podcast Awards. Carla, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks, Ben. My next guests have joined us in the studio uh, to talk about Bell Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra. I'm joined by Catherine McClements and Johnny Carr, who are playing the titular roles. Uh, Catherine, should this actually be called Cleopatra and Antony? Of course, of course. I'm glad you said that straight up. (laughs) (laughs) What's it like to play one of the most famous Shakespearean roles? Oh, it's terrible. I hate it. I mean, that, um, you know, that that sort of expectation that you come into a role like this, you know, is, is one of the things that I think you've got to deal with first up. And so from the very first, I really wanted to sort of abandon all those um, expectations in my own head and try and, uh, you know, I was talking early on, I dropped it fortunately, like she could be a girl you meet in the pub down on Saturday night, you know, la la la, that you fall in love with. So um, that was my beginning. And... Johnny, for you, obviously playing Anthony, who's a significant character, um, what's your approach to, to finding a character like this and making it your own? Um, I think it has been a thing of trying to ignore what's come beforehand, really, um, and not try to emulate something else or an idea of it. But it's just been, for me, he's uh, kind of this... He's a real failure in a lot of ways and just, like, embracing and running, running with that as an idea. Yeah. So the play itself, it's, I mean, it's a political struggle. It's a love story. It's, mm. uh, and it's, it's, a, it's one of the significant Shakespeare productions. What was it about the, the play that made you both want to take part in this particular production of it? For me, it was kind of the poetry towards this, the, the end of it, really, that it, it, it gets so abstract and the, um, heightened the language. That was the kind of, Appeal and also just that it's such a difficult play, and it's sort of I couldn't see a way of solving it, and that's a fun provocation to come to work with. Um, how are we going to crack it open, and what are we going to do with it? Like it's 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 really grand in its scope and what it um, how much it jumps around and everything and its themes. So yeah, it was a huge kind of challenge, I think, which is always exciting. Yeah, I think for me, you know, there are certain times that Shakespeare's plays become very potent, you know, and when you unpack them, that sort of time pod that's been travelling for 400 years, when you unpack it, suddenly it has great power. And I think Antony and Cleopatra is the time is now. It's about gender, it's about power, it's about failure and loss. And um, I think there's something in the air at the moment about those very things that make it um, sort of sing. And uh, for me, that was sort of an exciting time to start looking 
at that play. It's also about the clash between East and West in some ways as well and the, the clashing empires, which makes it kind of politically potent at the moment yes, as well. Yeah, and I think too, you know, um, our designer, when she began it, was looking very much at a, a, an idea of the UN where many cultures meet and mingle. And, you know, I mean, you could put this play in many ways, but I think we didn't want to look at the idea of the other, what it's like to be the other, that we are all the same, you know, and that Egypt is not this exotic empire from the east, but it is here, it lives with us. And so when we look at Egypt now, we look at a very sophisticated, modern culture. It's a contemporary um, take on the on the piece. And so I, I think that is part of it when we're starting to look at those cultures as something to be looked at, really. I read a review uh, of the production that says, yeah, that uh, Anna Cordingley's design essentially suggests the lobby of an exclusive hotel and everybody mm. lounging around in kind of uh, in, in sharp, uh, sharply tailored suits, expensive polo knits, cocktail wear. So yeah. t- tapping into that kind of glamorous world of, of, the, of the rich and the powerful and very much contemporising it. Mm. I mean, I think Anthony and Cleopatra is also about celebrity. It's about yeah. what it is to be famous. You know, they're at their height of their power. Everyone knows them around the empire. And the idea that politics and celebrity are now almost the same, you know. They mingle together. Those parties are full of Macron and Trump as well as, you know, all the, the big leads in the Hollywood films. And that idea that, that that power and celebrity are one is sort of um, explored in the play as well. And as a result of that, the expectation on these two is huge and they're almost never seen in private like it's it is there's this public presentation that's constantly going on and um yeah it's been a bit of a task like searching for those little moments of intimacy within just that relationship so the characters are having to perform power effectively and you're performing performance yeah which is which is um interesting because particularly as it goes on and the power is taken from you how you kind of deal with that do you admit that or do you kind of attempt to bluff your way through it and attempt to stir people to come with you when they can see that it's you know maybe not the best option. And also, if, if all your life you've been famous, suddenly that fame is taken away or that power, then who are you? What, what is left in, 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 in how you deal with other people and certainly with someone who you love? Let's talk about the, the love aspect of the story because so often Antony and Cleopatra is talked about as uh, the conversation we've been having. It's about power, it's about politics, it's about empires, it's about uh, kind of uh, the relationships be- not so much between individuals but between empires, but it is about the relationship between kind of two people. It's about uh, kind of uh, somebody... Well, Antony, for example, falls so much in love that he is walking away from being part of the triumvirate of, of power in Rome. So... How difficult is it to embody that kind of world-destroying passion on stage? Well, it's difficult. <laughs> um, but it's, it's also the thing of going like, do, what version of that do you want to do? And I think as it's gone on and as the run's gone on, it seems to be like the, 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 the moments of real currency between them and, and worth are these just tender, simple moments, I, I feel, that, that, you, that the best way to get that across, I think, because it's hard to 
it's it's hard to perform all that stuff. Like the plays filled with hyperbole and and the way they speak about each other is so heightened and exaggerated that like to actually match that performatively is I don't know a huge I don't know a huge ask and it, there's something in it that feels not genuine or something. But I, I've found particularly as it's gone on, those moments of tenderness and the moments where they have to leave when they don't want to and just trying to tap into the simple kind of truth and the reality of a relationship, really. Yeah, and I think also, too, I mean, we talk about Antony um, sort of abandoning the, the Rome for love, but also Cleopatra, she not abandons Egypt, but, you know, when Antony's losing, she could jump ship and she could, you know, go over to Caesar and she's offered it many times. And yet for love, she sacrifices all. And I think that that... that sort of is the the thing that Shakespeare is dealing with is that actually in the end when all everything is stripped away what really is left is the as you said the simple kiss of someone you love or the look in someone's eye and really that is what you take to your death not the grand statements mm. of life but the simple human interac- interaction and so finding those moments of of humanity uh, mm. in amidst all the, the power play and the drama, that pr- perhaps then is the real challenge for you as actors to to show people that the those simple human gestures that resonate across time, regardless of whether it's 400 years ago that Shakespeare was writing them or two and a half thousand years ago, well, whenever kind of Cleopatra was actually alive. I don't know the date. <laughs> 40 BC is Thank when you. it all comes on. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, so over 2,000 years, humanity hasn't really changed in all that time. So showing people that the, the, the emotion that's at stake rather than the power players at stake is you know, really where your, the, your skill as actors has to, to, to be brought to bear. Yes, that's right. You want to find those moments that resonate but don't diminish the play, you know, that yeah. actually heighten the play. You know, it's, um, it's, it's that the challenge I think that, that Johnny and I have sort of looked at and also you know this this sense of the public display as, as opposed to the personal um, moments that they have between them is what we've been trying to eke out in the play mm. obviously you've uh, the fact uh, Catherine that you could just rattle off the date uh, <laughs> to me that you've been doing a bit of research oh there was a beautiful biography that came out of Cleopatra um, just recently Stacey Schiff um, who's I think she's won numerous awards for her biographies just trying to look at you know to to strip away the all the 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 you know that Rome wrote about Cleopatra Egypt didn't write about Cleopatra and try to strip away all that sort of idea and find out who she is in the at the heart of it I found it really interesting I don't know how much you bring because it's a very contemporary look at but it's just what's in the air what's the zeitgeist at the moment that we're trying to look at Cleopatra not as uh, someone dressed in gold who's you know um, says all this incredible language and someone to look at from afar but what is she inside and what it is like to be her and I think that you know um with that biography, it was a great way of um, starting to come to the um, to the play, and that that I was very keen, you know, not to be you know dressed in the gold dress, but actually Antony and Cleopatra are dressed very similarly. You know, they are both um, leaders of their countries, and then we go from there. If you've just tuned in, we're chatting with Catherine McClements and Johnny Carr about Bell Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra, which uh, is previewing tonight at uh, Art Centre Melbourne, then opening tomorrow night. The season runs through until the 13th of May. You've already done the Sydney season and a season in Canberra as well. 
uh, so Melbourne gets the road tested version, so <laughs> kind of tightened and tweaked. How much, as actors, what's it like uh, knowing that you're committing to such a long season and knowing that the your performance and the production itself will change over time as your director decides to cut this line or tighten this scene or change the pacing? Uh, it's been a great experience, and particularly with a role like this, that there's so much to keep digging into. I think the main frustration or something was having to open knowing that you hadn't (laughs) solved or you know wrestled with everything that you wanted to maybe but it's it's fantastic and um and each space we've been in so far has kind of changed the dynamic and opened it up to new uh, versions of playing different scenes or moments and um yeah the the uh, Fairfax where we're in at the Arts Centre it's a you know more intimate kind of um, uh, less kind of front on proscenium space so there's a lot there's a lot of um, detail I think and nuance in there that we'll be able to achieve maybe that we haven't been able to get in the other spaces I'm interested, Johnny, you said that there's that frustration knowing that when you're, you're opening you haven't nailed what you want to do yet. So obviously, you know, in a long run like this, you had the opportunity to do that. But how different is that frustration always the case for actors in any role when you open going, if only we had another two weeks rehearsal, we could just kind of nail this? It's, I think it's not another two weeks rehearsal in a way because you get what you can out of rehearsals. It's having an audience there for five weeks that you can work out what's... And it's only really by performing it sometimes that you sort of understand it's um, so that's the frustration is you know I mean that's why in, in many countries they have five weeks out of town and then they bring it into the because through the audience you suddenly understand what the play is and you and you know once you're opening you go I know I'm going to look back at this opening night in four weeks time and just kick myself so that's the agony and in a way it's been lovely to have that five weeks and to think now oh now I get it now this 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 and um, so Melbourne do get that that opportunity. How much have your takes on the characters or your performances changed since the uh, the the Sydney season, which was what from the opened at the start of March? Quite a lot, I think. Yeah, I think there has been a fair bit of movement um, from the whole cast, really. Yeah, think, yeah. the yeah. whole play shifts as together, you know, as it. It's the subtleties, it's the nuances, what you what you can push, what the audience get that you didn't realise was there. Sometimes, sometimes you get a laugh and you go, "Why? Why was yeah. that?" And then you suddenly see the play in a whole new thing. Yeah, yeah, and things changed in Canberra. Like we heard it through the audience differently. It, Very smart audience in Canberra. And certain, <laughs> certain things would land, and you go, "Oh!" And you kind of you hear it in a new light, and then you know, yeah. Yeah. So what a Melbourne audience is going to be like, do you think? Well, we'll see, we'll see. <laughs> Who knows? They're hard to please, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> Bell Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra is previewing tonight and opening tomorrow night in the Fairfax studio at Arts Centre Melbourne. The season runs through until the 13th of May and you can book through bellshakespeare.com.au or by calling 1300 182 183. Uh, Catherine and Johnny, after you finish this season here in Melbourne, that's it for this production, but the two of you keep working together. That's right. Yeah, we've got a brief uh, hiatus and then we work uh, on the events again uh, that we did a couple of years ago through Belvoir, Malthouse and... Uh, Adelaide Festival? Uh, yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, so we're doing that at Black Swan in Perth. So and fortunately we live on other sides of the river so we never run into each other <laughs> other than working. <laughs> that's right. 
so, look, as a final question, for actors, one of the challenges for, for that I know uh, is the intensity of, of, of a performance. You come together, you work intensively for a while, and then you walk off and have to create new friendships, new dynamics, new work environments. Having already established a kind of working shorthand, uh, an emotional kind of uh, relationship in the event, which is now a couple of years old when it premiered, mm-hmm. how helpful was that to come together to work on this production, knowing that you already know how one another works? Because in in Anthony and Cleopatra, you have to be able to convincingly display and uh, convince the audience of the depth of uh, the emotion between your characters that you will drag empires down to be together <laughs> effectively. So yeah. was it helpful having kind of worked on something like the events previously coming into this show? I found it to be really helpful. I find that there's uh, there's always a kind of a bit of a dance with these things that takes you a little while to figure the other person out. But I think having a having a run and having a, um, you know, a huge amount of trust for Catherine, like having worked together... It was so helpful coming into something like this where you really do have to pour yourself into it. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's right. You, yeah, we've already embarrassed um, ourselves in front of each other, <laughs> so we've done that bit and you got through that bit and then you can move on. So, yeah, that was... And also, there's, for me, there was an incredible respect for Johnny's work. I, You know, I, I just adore... And I've seen him in many shows, you know, so um, his emotional range and um, his sincerity and honesty in the way he acts was for me really exciting to to begin a show with and I knew that um, he wouldn't take any shortcuts as far as doing that and he was sort of up for that challenge so for me it was really exciting to begin work like that This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne truly independent community radio